Good morning. Um, our second Bible reading is taken from John chapter 4, uh, from verses 27 to 54, and it's on page 113 in your Pew Bible. Um, so John 4:27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages, even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servant met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's word.
Thank you, Moy. Well, good morning, everyone. It's been uh, some time since I've last preached in the morning service, and some of you might be wondering, who is this guy with the beard up the front this morning? So let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Bryce. I'm a, a fourth-year Bible college student. Um, I have the privilege of being placed at Surrey Hills to be trained for ministry. Uh, and normally, on Sunday morning, you'll find me serving in the kids' church up in the vestry behind us here. But uh, I have a question for you this morning. If you were to finish this sentence, I'll be satisfied when, how would you end it? Imagine you could have anything in this whole world to satisfy you. What would you choose? You know, I'm confident that there's something that you're thinking of because when you think about it, Satisfaction is what every single one of us wants. It's why we like holidays. Recently, I went on holidays hoping to satisfy my desire to relax. But the trip didn't live up to expectation. My friend and I arrived at our apartment and we were told we can't stay there. And so I spent two hours on the phone trying to find new accommodation in the rain outside. We found a place and we arrived at our new place and we realised it was practically on the side of a mountain. And so every day going up and down, having to climb all these uh, long, uh, steep streets, the holiday was still good, but it didn't satisfy like I'd hoped. And sadly, we go on these trips all hopeful that they will satisfy us. But maybe though the place where we're most hoping to find satisfaction is in relationships. We crave friendships. We crave them because we want to share our passions, our interests with those who get them, who relate. And in finding such friends, we think we'll be satisfied it's so often friends let us down. Perhaps most of all, though, most of all, we crave romance because our deepest desires, good ones, which are to be loved, to be appreciated, to be known, to be accepted, we expect that satisfaction will come when those deep needs are met in another. But then again, I'm single. So what do I know about relationships? Moving right along. The interesting thing is that there's a woman in our story who's looking for satisfaction. And she was looking for it in romance. And there's a question she's confronted with. And it's confronting us as well. We're going to encounter something we really need to know or else risk being dissatisfied for the rest of our life. This morning's passage shows us there's actually just one path in this life to lasting satisfaction. Drinking the right water, worshipping the right way, and eating the right food. The story we're about to explore is centred around a well. You might say the Ancient well is like the modern supermarket. 
It's a place in the village where people gather the essentials and have a chat with locals. And Jesus is on the move to Jerusalem. He's weary, he's thirsty, he's been walking all day. And so he decides to stop in Samaria. And notice in verse 6 it says, he sat down by the well. Jesus stopped in Samaria. Samaria was a no-go zone for Jews like Jesus. It was a community full of half-castes who only believed the first five books of the Bible. And yet in verses 7 to 9, Jesus asks the Samaritan woman for a drink. He's not just asking a Samaritan, he's asking a woman. In Jewish culture, you didn't even talk to your wife down the street, let alone a, 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 another woman. But what's even more fascinating is Jesus' response. Have a look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. How interesting. Jesus implies that he's the gift of God. But the focus is on, is on something else. Look at the next part of his response. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What a statement to make. The gift of God offers his own gift. And this is Old Testament talk. Jeremiah 2.13, God is a fountain of living waters. Jesus, in some sense, is claiming to give her God. In the next couple verses, the woman replies with a jibe or, or a jab. How could someone possibly claim to provide something greater than what's in this well? I mean, our forefather Jacob built it. Is Jesus saying he's greater? But Jesus presses on. Look at verse 14. Jesus says this water will become a spring of water inside of them, welling up to eternal life. But the woman replies almost sarcastically, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. She's probably aware of her sin, and she doesn't like where this is going. Here's the point. Jesus says this woman, she's in need. She needs this living water. The water that satisfies eternally, the Spirit of God. He's saying that everything else is like regular water. It gives fleeting satisfaction in this life. We spend a whole life often trying to gather objects, pursuing opportunities, chasing experiences, fulfilling dreams only to leave it all behind at the foot of the grave, being separated from God and suffering. Like, how horrible is that? Jesus wants the woman and he wants us to see that we weren't made for that. We have eternity set in our hearts, as Ecclesiastes says, and we can only truly be satisfied when we have this living water who enables us to know God 
and live for eternity with him in relationship. When I was nine, I lived on a farm. And on that farm was a series of ponds. And the top pond had a spring underneath it. And I could never understood it, but it just blew my mind that somehow there's this, there's this never-ending stream of water that was flowing under the pond. The pond never got empty during summer with evaporation. It was always replenished with water from underneath. The water never stopped flowing. God's living water is no different. It gives a never-ending supply of satisfaction to the soul now, I presume that we all want such satisfaction, but what's our response to Jesus' offer? Do we just take it gratefully? Or are we like the woman who thinks the wells of this life are better? Do we doubt that Jesus could possibly give us something better? I don't know about you, but this actually really challenged me. You know, I've received this living water many years ago. In my best moments, the living water is more precious than anything else to me. In my worst moments, I return to those old wells, hopelessly looking for what I keep forgetting I already have. And so I have to realign my heart. And I wonder this morning if anyone else can relate. Jesus has unsettled a woman by showing her need for living water, but Jesus has much more to say to her and to us. And this is that lasting satisfaction comes from worshipping the right way. And this is our second point. So the woman's doubtful about Jesus being superior to Jacob. But now Jesus proves it. Look at verse 16. He tells her, Go and call your husband. And she replies, I haven't got a husband. And he basically says, Yeah, I know. And I know that you've been married five times, and the guy you're with now, you're not married to. Imagine that. You've never met this guy. He's not a local. He's from that way. And somehow he knows everything about you, your whole history. Things are getting very personal, very fast. And what's interesting is her response. Listen to it. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped in Jerusalem, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. <clears throat> interesting reply. Now, she could be changing topics to drop the pressure, to change, you know, focus. She could be seeking to really know which place of worship is more pleasing to God. Perhaps it's both. But what Jesus says in reply is profound. Look at verse 21 with me. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus wanted the woman to firstly understand that right worship involves knowing who you're worshipping. And this isn't really easy when you only read the first five books 
of the Bible as the Samaritans did. It's like watching the first Netflix episode of The Queen, or sorry, The Crown, and thinking you really know Queen Elizabeth when there are dozens of episodes that are developing that character. But even more importantly, Jesus wanted this woman to know you don't need to just know who you're worshipping. You need to worship in spirit and in truth. And this is something new. This is something brand new. And you can imagine the woman just wondering, well, what does that even mean? Worship in spirit and in truth. And in verse 23, uh, 4, he gives us a clue. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and truth. Jesus mentioned the spirit back in chapter 3. We saw last week that we must be born again. Born again of the spirit to enter the kingdom. And we also learned that the spirit cannot be seen, only heard. You see, in order to worship God in spirit and in truth, we need that living water to open our eyes to see the kingdom and to know the king of the kingdom. And having that, kingdom, that living water gives us new hearts to worship with sincerity towards God. But what about this truth aspect? Well, later in the gospel, Jesus says he is the truth. And so worshipping in truth means worshipping God as he's now revealed in his son, in the Lord Jesus. And so putting it all together, Jesus gives the gift of living water. He chooses us. We become born again. We see the king as he really is and the existence of his kingdom. And that results in a relationship with God and we're enabled to worship in spirit and in truth. But how does that relate to being satisfied, you're wondering right now? Well, we think about it. We usually worship the thing that we hope to find the most satisfaction in. Jesus is implying that when we gain that living water, we'll find the satisfaction in the right worship of the living God. But back to the story. Look at verse 25. See the women's response. I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And now Jesus drops the bombshell. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. If our story is a piece of classical music, this is the crescendo. The Messiah has come and he's taken off the mask. In the next few verses, the woman returns home to tell the world how a man turned her world upside down. We asked ourselves the question, where do we find living satisfaction, lasting satisfaction? And according to Jesus, we find it by drinking the right water, which means receiving his spirit and worshipping the right way, which is possible when we gain that living water. But there's one more thing that such people do. They eat the right food. And this is the third point today. We find lasting satisfaction when we eat the right food. But before Jesus shares the final means to lasting satisfaction, the disciples show up. The disciples show up in verse 27. 
And they're confused. What's Jesus doing, speaking to this random woman? But meanwhile, the woman, she's not even aware. She is so consumed with joy. Have a look at verse 28. She's so amazed by this encounter that she leaves the water jar behind and hurries back home. And she hurries back home telling anyone who will listen about this man that told her all that she ever did. Like, isn't that interesting? The woman came for this precious water in Jacob's well. She spoke so highly of this water and this well to Jesus. And by the end of her encounter with Jesus, she just forgets it. The jar's just there and she just hurries off home. And why? Why did she forget it? She forgot it because she gained a new water which was far more precious than the water she came for. But now the focus shifts to the disciples. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. You're hungry. Now, these men meant well, but just like the woman, these men were focused on the physical. And so Jesus said to them, verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He goes on to explain his food is the Father's work. And this work is the spiritual harvest. It's the harvest, the spiritual crop of people who are going to come to faith. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus equates satisfaction that, the satisfaction that comes from eating food with ministry. Now, it seems strange when you think about it. When we labor in the work of the Lord, we find great joy in the fruit. You see, when we see people grow in their faith, when we see hearts that were burdened set free, when we see hearts that were cold towards God become hot, it just gives us amazing satisfaction. And in verse 35, we see that it's the Samaritan people that are ripe for the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And look at how he describes the situation in verse 36. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. When we participate in God's work of evangelism, of discipleship, we draw a wage and, our har and we harvest a crop for eternal life. And that results in gladness. Gladness for us, gladness for God. When we receive the living water, we are enabled to worship the right way. We're invited to harvest God's crop and we gain gladness. That, friends, is where satisfaction is found. And in the final few verses, we see the fruit of this ministry. The woman, without, without even being told about this idea of the food of God, going off and getting her own harvest. Look at verse 29. Many believed in him because of whose testimony? Her testimony. What a story. But we, we can't leave it there. If... We really want the satisfaction that lasts. We have to reflect 
on the implications it has for us. And the first one is this. Which well are we drinking from? As I reflected on this question, it became clear that sometimes I do return to old wells in my life. Let me share a story of how it happened to me. Back in 2014, I began a thing called a ministry apprenticeship. I'd just given my first sermon to my trainer. I think it was on John 6, actually. And I thought it was all right. I thought it did okay. And uh, I was expecting him to give some good feedback, some good encouraging thoughts. Now, he tried to be gentle initially and, and sort of edge around what he was trying to do. But I was, I was sensing some negativity and I got defensive. What was wrong with my sermon? My, my last pastor seemed to think it was okay. And then he said the line that I will never, ever forget. He said, well, look, basically, it sucked. <laughs> there goes the ego. Now, we actually caught up last Sunday night and we laughed about that story. But at the time, I wasn't laughing. Anything but the laughing. You see, what I wanted, what I desired was approval. I wanted to be told I was a good preacher. Instead of being content with my living water, I returned to the dirty well of seeking approval. There are so many wells in this life that promise what they cannot give. But this morning I want to examine perhaps the most popular of all human wells, and that is the well of wanting to feel important. Wanting to feel important is a very powerful desire. This desire led a poor grocery worker in the 19th century to buy a few legal books worth 50 cents, become a lawyer, and go on to become one of the most powerful, famous figures in history. You might have heard of his name. His name is Abraham Lincoln. But desire doesn't just motivate the greats of this world, it motivates you and I. Our desire to be important is what drives us to feel excited when we rub shoulders with those who are important. It often drives us to achieve high grades in school because we know we gain the esteem of others. It's what can often or sometimes motivate us to pursue marriage because married couples seem to have more social standing. It's what can lead us to have kids even sometimes because people who successfully raise good and godly children are well regarded. The desire for importance is subtle and it is intoxicating. But like every other earthly well, it is like a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. We chase and chase, but never get the gold of lasting satisfaction. I wonder if anyone right now can relate. Maybe you have the living water, but at times, maybe even right now, you've lost your way and you've returned to old wells. Perhaps this morning it's time to repent of returning to old wells and return afresh to the living water of the Holy Spirit. But maybe some of us don't have that yet. And if that's you, Jesus' offer of this living water 
is extended to you. Are you ready to drink and be satisfied? Secondly, are we worshipping the right way? We've just encountered this idea of worshipping in spirit and truth. We all desire to worship something. We desire to worship something beyond ourselves. But the trouble is we want to do it our way. And God wants us to do it his way, in spirit and in truth. Some try to worship in spirit. They might be passionate in doing so. The trouble is it's actually not directed to the God of the Bible. A mate of mine, he married a girl many years ago who professed to be Christian. Maybe she still is, I don't know. She seemed serious about God. She read her Bible. She went to growth group. She went to church. She seemed to sing passionately when we heard her at church. But gradually that marriage failed to live up to her expectations. And she got more and more anxious and restless. And what I've understood is that she decided that God wanted her to be happy and she wasn't happy and so she had to get divorced. That's what she concluded. And, in, and she had a half-truth. God did want her to be happy, does want her to be happy, but happy in him, not happy in marriage. Now, it's easy for us to judge the girl and, and, and think how horrible is that, but it's for us to reflect this morning. Are there beliefs we have about God that are of our own imaginations instead of the Bible? The other side of the coin, the other pitfall, is worshipping only in truth. Do you know, back in the 17th century, studying theology was like uh, a hobby for gentlemen. It was the in vogue thing to do. And yet history tells us that many of those men did not worship in spirit. And the reason why is because the truths that they enjoyed learning all about and studying in detail never went from here to hear. And so it's good to consider when it, are our hearts in alignment with the truth that we profess. But there's one final thing to reflect on. If the food of Jesus is to do the will of God, how does this become our food as well? You see, the disciples came to Jesus to get him to eat. But Jesus' food is more important. It's the work of God. And Jesus invites them to work to that work as well. And this invitation extends to us, that we too find satisfaction by doing that work. But how do we get to the point when that work seems more satisfying than food? Well, consider, consider the story one more time. Jesus arrived into Samaria. He was hungry. He was tired. He was thirsty. There was a woman who needed salvation. Now, he could have just ignored her and got a drink and carried on to Jerusalem. But in obedience to the Father, he reached out to her. Because the Father's work was his highest priority, he found the motivation to converse with her. Because he recognized the urgency of what he had been sent to do, he took the opportunity to engage her there and then and later on to reach out to many more Samaritans who would embrace him as well. 
If we want Jesus' food to be our food, we need to strive to obey his will in the scriptures. We need to see that the great commission to make disciples is our highest priority. And we need to recognize the urgency to do so. And what I admire about this church is that so many of you are already living this out. Some of you give up your time to serve in the kids' church, like the people out there. Some of you do it in the youth group every Friday night, sacrificing that time. Others spend your time helping those who are moving into our country from abroad to teach them English and to tell them about the Saviour that you love. And others still spend their Saturdays going to Box Hill and doing outreach, telling people about this living water. What great opportunities to eat the food of God. But for those of us not engaged in such things, it's good to consider whether we are eating that food because in the end, the only person who ultimately misses out is us. Friends, we serve a good God. A God who gives us lasting satisfaction. Let's make it our aim to be satisfied in him afresh and to point others to the well of God. Let's pray.